So how does being a, a, a holy people, it's not exactly the word, he uses the word holy, though. I think he says holy nation or something like that in, in uh, that First Peter 2 passage. Um, how does that affect, so that's who we are, so what does that mean for the way we live? Different from the world. Yeah, so set apart, the word holy means set apart, or to be set apart from the world, that's right. Yep. So, so yeah, I think that's a, that's a pretty big theme throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament. It's not, it's not just a New Testament thing. Um, that we are the people of God, whether you're Old Covenant or New Covenant, there's certain things that are true about them. Their, their identity is different than it was before God chose them and, and, and worked all those details out into everyday life. Their job now is to live out that new identity, right? Um, that's why, you know, you hear in the New Testament, you've got the indicative, right? Which is the, the statements of fact, right? This is who you are. Christ redeemed you. You're beloved children of God. Um, you know, you're saints, holy ones. Saints is just the word holy in Greek. Holy ones, that's what we're talking about. Set apart ones. Um, and then, usually partway through and sometimes back and forth, then you get the what? The imperative, the command. Because this is true, you need to live like it. And this is what it looks like. Right? So we see that over and over again throughout the Bible. And so that's, that's uh, we have that happening here in Deuteronomy as well. So we're in Deuteronomy chapter 14. And you'll remember just a brief introduction to remind us, Deuteronomy is a series of sermons by Moses. And he's giving it to this new generation that um, arose during their wilderness wanderings. This generation is about to enter the land. And so they, they need to be faithful to the covenant, right, that God made with them. In other words, they, they have to demonstrate faithfulness and they will receive God's blessing. The things God promised in the covenant, he would do, right? We, so, so we see those, those realities and so Moses is reminding them of that. So we saw the first uh, sermon speech in chapters one through four, what God had done for them, kind of laying out the, that's a lot of identity stuff, right? This is who God is and this is who you are. So just reminders of that. Uh, and then we started with the section we're in now is, is the biggest section. It's the central section of Deuteronomy. And it goes all the way from like verse uh, into four, all the way to probably 26, 28, somewhere in that area. And it's zooming in on what it looks like for them to live out this reality of who God is and who they are in the land. So the first part of this speech, we've kind of already looked at, that was in chapter four through um, 11. And that's the big picture um, stuff where he goes over the Ten Commandments again, right? Because that's the heart of their covenant. Um, and then really the heart of all that, we could say, we, so we could even boil it down even more, would be to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, right? And so we see that in that section. He's really laying out kind of big picture. This is what it's going to look like to live in the land. Well, the issue is they're going to live in the land and they're going to have daily life stuff and they have to live as a holy people. So now he's zooming in and he's saying, this is what it's going to look like to live in the land in God's perfect place, or not perfect at this point, but God's place under God's rule. Um, this is what it's going to look like. And so that's the section we've been in for the past couple weeks. Um, and so we're, that's where we're at now as well. And so we're going to look at life before the face of God. Um, what does it look like specifically for them in the old covenant? But we're also going to see and try to make application into the new covenant because yeah, we're not under the old covenant. So we're not going to have exact, you know, like we're going to read dietary laws. We're not under the dietary laws. Those have been fulfilled. That's very clear in the new covenant. Uh, so, but that doesn't mean that there's nothing that we learn here from what it means to be a holy people 
and how your identity should impact the way you live as God's people. That's kind of what we're seeing, right? You're living before God's face. Uh, for them in the land, that would be there's going to eventually be a temple. One thing you're going to notice in this section, repeated over and over again, is uh, in the place where I choose to make my name dwell. God says that over and over and over again in chapters 14 through 16. Because why? The whole goal has been God's people in God's blessing presence. That's why the temple is going to be central. That's why the tabernacle has been central, right? That's why God brought them out of Egypt, that they may worship me, right? So you, this has been the storyline, right? It goes all the way back to the garden. Adam and Eve were there, and God wa- was walking among them. The pre- presence of God was among them. What happens when they sin? They get pushed out of God's place because they rebelled against God's rule, right? And now there's a cherubim saying, you can't come in here. You guys remember all this? Is it all connecting? Okay. So that's what we've seen. And so we're going to, so one thing we're going to see is over and over again, in the place that your God chooses to make his name dwell. Um, another thing we're going to see, at, at, maybe not repeated as much, but I think this sets the tone. And this is what I've really been trying to, to get at with my example is chapter 14, verse two, for you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And so that's what we're seeing over and over again, right? You, um, this is who you are. Live like it. You're set apart to God. Live like it. Um, you know, and so let me back up for a second and say one more thing. Um, I don't know if this is the best analogy or illustration, but I'm going to go with it because it came to me. I thought it was good. Um, it's kind of like, so Deuteronomy is kind of like, you know, when you, uh, if, you've, if you've ever had young kids and you pull up to church or somewhere in the minivan, um, you guys, you guys know the, the talk that typically happens, especially if it's a new place. Like if it's a place you went over and over again, maybe they know the talk. But you're going somewhere new. It's kind of a formal environment. You're going to a wedding with them. They've never been to a wedding or something, right? There, there's a lot of, you are a, I'm going I'm to use my last name, but you insert your last name, right? You're a Kazrai and you're going to act like it, right? And this is what that means for this environment where you're going into, right? We're not going to bite each other, hit each other, throw food, right? I mean, you go through all the different things that it's going to mean. It's kind of, it's kind of like that. I mean, and, and in some ways it's, it's not a perfect analogy because the Israelites are not children in that respect, right? I mean, children need a much more, so Moses is not patronizing them. The stuff he's calling them to are, this is mature living before God type stuff, right? Um, so, so it's, it's, it's more serious than I'm trying to make, but you get the point. It's kind of, that's kind of the feel that you get in Deuteronomy. It's kind of like, you're about to go in the land you need to remember who you are and what that's going to look like when you get in the land, right? And so that's kind of what we're getting here. Okay, so specifically we're going to see it uh, broke down. I think I've got maybe five different sections here. And uh, we are covering quite a bit today, but part of that is because we've already seen a lot of this stuff earlier in the Pentateuch. Uh, the dietary laws, uh, stuff about the tithe, um, um, stuff about um, forgiving debts, things like that. We, we've kind of seen uh, the calendar type stuff. We've seen this, but again, what's different is they're about to enter the land, and so there's maybe some more specifics, some different emphasis that's going on, things like that. And so we still can glean quite a bit from it, especially when we think about it in the context where it's kind of like, this is what life's going to look like. And so then we think, okay, as New Testament believers, what does life look like? So I think it, it's, it's very useful for us to do this, um, but there's also a reason we're not going to go slow and verse by verse like we might be doing in Romans or something right now, okay? Especially because we've already seen this in Leviticus especially and Numbers. A lot of this stuff is coming out of those two books that we just looked at. So you can always go back and find find those, those um, Sunday school lessons and listen to them. All right, so let's talk about chapter 14, verses 1 through 21. This section focuses on their need to be set apart to the Lord. That's what the word holy is going to mean, set apart, uh, distinct from the world. Look at verse 1 and 2. 
You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So verse 1, what are they not supposed to do? Cut themselves. Shave their heads bald, right? Okay, um, so most likely these are things associated with, um, could be associated with, with, with two different things. One is, it, he does mention for the dead. So at least part of this probably was some sort of pagan thing whenever someone died, this was part of their ritual thing they would do. The, maybe it was uh, shaving their heads in a particular way. Um, it's probably some sort of cult of the dead connection thing, right? This is, in other words, this is pagan worship stuff. So they're not supposed to in any way be associated with that. Uh, it's also possible that there's some fertility stuff going on here with the idea of their blood, their lifeblood running when they cut it down into the earth, calling forth Baal and other gods to make the earth fertile. That's also possible. We don't know exactly what it is. What we do know for sure is it has to do with uh, kind of the cultic things going on in the land. Right, And then somehow, at least part of this is dealing with how they would mourn the dead or worship the dead, one of the two. Somehow it's connected to the dead. So that's pretty obvious. Um, so why? what's the reason given that they need to avoid these practices? Just because it's like personal preference? It's just weird? To be separate, unique, set yeah. apart. Set apart and unique, that's right. And, and so why, what, what are the, how, how is uh, Israel described in this passage? What are some terms that are used to describe them? Children of Yahweh. Yeah, so, so here we have children of the Lord, right? You are children of the Lord. The, this pagan nation, they are not children of the Lord in this way, right? I mean, God's the creator of all people, but not, not children this way, not redeemed, his sons. Um, what else? His Holy people. Holy people, that's right. So set apart, um, set apart to God for his glory. Holy, yep. There's a lot of types in the Old Testament and prophetic and Testament theology. Yep. And so they're messing with the types. They're messing up New Testament theology. Okay, yeah. Yep, yeah. So so some of this stuff about them being the sun and stuff, I mean, th these things are pointing ahead in the storyline, right? And so it's important that they're going to live fulfilling what God's told them to do because that's pointing ahead to Jesus ultimately and the church and what God's going to do in the new covenant. I think it points that direction. Yep. Um, so I'm trying to think if we missed any. So we got uh, sons, uh, people holy to the Lord your God. Chosen. chosen. Yep, chosen to be his treasured possession, right? Um, so that that's who they are. So my point is, in two verses, we have at least three different things about who they are, their identity, Right? Things that are, this is not the identity of other peoples. This is the identity of the people whom God has chosen. He's made sons um, and he set them apart for himself. So why should they not engage in these things? Because they're set apart. They belong to God. They're his treasured possession. That's why. Um, so they need to li look different. They need to live differently. <clears throat> so, that, so we see here... Um, that this, this ties into new identity, new way of living. We saw it specifically with those kind of rituals, but now we see it in verses 3 through 21, and we're not going to read all of 3 through 21. Um, part of that's because we've already talked about some of this in the past. Part of that's because you and I are not under the dietary law. So this is still the word of God, and we still can learn from it, but we don't need it necessarily right now. I think when you read it in the Bible, in your quiet time, you should read all the way through this. But we don't need to stop and look at every single animal here. Right? Because the reality is, you could go eat a 
bacon, lettuce, tomato sandwich and be okay. They wouldn't. You could, okay? Um, but I, we still, there's still things we can glean from this. So I just want to summarize it by reading a couple verses. Look at verse 3, talking about clean and unclean foods. So after talking about who they, who they are, so they need to be set apart to God. Here's one other way they're going to be set apart. Besides not engaging in all these pagan rituals, their food. You shall not eat, verse 3, any abomination. These are the animals you may eat. And then he lists a bunch of land animals there. Uh, verse 9. Of all that are in the waters, you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales, you may eat. Whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. Verse 11. You may eat all clean birds, but these are the ones that you shall not eat. And then he gives you a list. Verse 21. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. So hold on for one second before we read that last verse. What's, what's the reason for these laws ultimately? You are set apart to God. So again, I think whatever, whatever the specifics are about why these particular animals are clean or unclean, the big picture is this is going to be what's going to show you to be different from these other nations. Set apart to God. Right? That's baseline. We know that's true. Uh, and then the last verse, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Let's talk real quick about these. Uh, I, I don't think we're given an exact reason as to why certain animals are in, certain animals are, are not. I think we have some things we can infer from this passage and from other passages. So, um, I'll just give you a couple, couple things related to clean and unclean, specifically in foods and stuff, just as some, some possibilities. Um, one is we talked about this when we did Leviticus. We talked about clean and unclean in depth during that time period and what the differences were and how you had holy, clean, unclean, right? And unclean in Leviticus often seemed to point to this idea of this realm of the dead because God is the God of life. They were not to come near him if they were unclean. Um, unclean did not mean necessarily under God's judgment, even in Leviticus, right? In fact, most of the time it, it was pretty clear it did not mean that. But if you were to approach God while you were unclean, something that was signifying or touching upon death and you were to try to come in the God of life's presence, that would be very dangerous for you because God is the God of life. And so we saw that when we looked at things like different skin diseases and different things in the book of Leviticus. So I know very interesting stuff. If you're interested more in dermatology in the Old Testament, you can go back, find that lesson, listen to it. Um, I'm sure it'll be very eye-opening. Um, but I think that's one thing we see with clean and unclean. So that, that probably is somewhat at play in some of this food stuff. Um, some, many of these animals listed, um, well, not many, but at least some of them would have um, probably eaten animals that were already dead. So some of the birds that are listed, or at least maybe most of the birds that are listed. Uh, now, the thing with the birds is we, uh, we, a lot of those words, we actually don't know exactly what birds they're referring to. To some degree, the translators, they knew they were birds, but they, they tried to connect them to birds, and I don't, know if they, I don't even know if they know if they got it right all the time. Uh, and that's okay, because you're not under the old covenant right now, so you don't have to figure out exactly which birds you can and can't eat. Um, they probably did a good job picking out the ones you shouldn't eat. You probably would agree with those and be like, yeah, I probably wouldn't eat that bird. Um, so, and some of these animals lived in, um, in situations that would have um, at least pictured something of death, that maybe they were cave-dwelling animals. Uh, you think of dead being buried in caves. Some of them were living in underground things. You think of dead being buried in the ground. Um, so probably rock badgers, things like that, you know, living in these kind of environments. Um, so that's one thing. Second thing, uh, the word abominable is used. It's also used in two other places in um, Deuteronomy. Both of those other cases seem to be associated with false religions, 
And so some of these animals, it's quite possible there were things associated with false religions. Um, even that boiling the young goat and his mother's milk probably associated with um, some of the pagan worship that was going on. Uh, the other thing with that is it could also be this idea connecting to the first point I made that uh, milk was supposed to give the young kid goat, right? It's always weird when you call it a kid and you're talking about like boiling it, but goat kid, right? Baby, baby goat. Um, it, it, uh, using what should give it life to cook it. That, that could be kind of the disconnect, life and death connection there. Um, a third thing could be hygiene, things like that, um, health-related, things like that. Uh, there was some doctor that did some study way back in the day. I don't really know, but anyway, I guess he decided or figured out that some of these had less toxins than others in them. Um, real quick mention on the, the eating roadkill. It doesn't necessarily say roadkill, but it talks about animals that die on their own, right? So I'm just picturing someone hits a deer and you're like, what do we do with that deer? Um, so they had to answer those questions too, right? And uh, the answer was they were not to eat it. And I don't think, uh, some commentators think it's because of possible contamination. While that is true, I mean, and it, you know, you probably should not just go find a deer laying on the side of the road and just pick it up and you have no idea how long it's been there. That's probably not a good idea. Um, contamination could be an issue, but he does say you can sell it to the foreigner and the sojourner. I mean, it could be kind of like oysters, right? Like raw oysters, you're like, well, I mean, eat at your own risk. You know that you probably, you could get sick from eating this. Um, it could be that, but I, I find, I, I tend to think that it probably is, in other places in Deuteronomy, it's talked about when you slaughter your animals, this is how it's going to be done. The blood will be drained out of it, and then you're going to eat it. The point is, these animals wouldn't have been slaughtered that way. The blood would not have been let out. So it probably was just an issue, again, of... This is what God told you to do. So when you find an animal, that doesn't fit so you, the, the way God said to do it, right? Yeah. Speaking of blood, doesn't the Bible say even in the New Testament, there's, there's certain things about like consuming blood? Right. So Acts talks about how the Gentile believers were, were to have in mind their Jewish brothers and sisters when it came to things they would eat. And I think one of those was they were not supposed to eat blood. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. Um, yeah, so the point here is overall the idea is we must be set apart. They must be set apart. They must be distinct in their worship and connection to God and distinct from the way the pagans look. How does this fit to, to New Testament believers? Um, okay, so first of all, are we as New Covenant believers, and so I'm going to use the, in the handout, the, I used New Covenant and then I put in brackets, uh, or in, yeah, whatever you call that, parentheses, uh, NC. So whenever you see NC, if you see that, I'm not, I don't always use that, but if I do, I mean New Covenant, okay? Um, how does it apply to us? Are we um, set apart to God? Yes. I'm not going to necessarily read this whole passage again. Um, so I actually just put 1 Peter 2.9 as the reference, but you can obviously tell it's more verses than that. But, but notice the beginning. We talked about who we are. We already read that verse, like verse 9. Uh, I actually skipped verse 10 there. Sorry about that. But what I wanted you to see was in verse 11, really. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. So yeah, we no longer, are, we're going to talk about this in a second, we no longer have to abstain from certain foods. But the picture is still there. We abstain from passions of the flesh. In many ways, these foods, if, if, if some of them are connected to pagan worship, again, I'm not saying all of them were, that would be a reality for them too. Right? So this is just the spiritual reality that applies to every people who belong to the Lord God in every nation, every tribe, every tongue. They may eat rock badger nuggets over here, and the people living over here don't, and that's okay. But all of them are going to abstain from fleshly indulgences, sinful indulgences. Right, That spiritual reality, the principle carries on in a spiritual reality. And, and I'm not making that up. I'm telling you that because that's what Peter says. 
You see what I'm saying? I mean, we do have to be careful about just making up stuff when we say, well, this is how we're going to spiritualize this in the New Testament. Um, not everything's going to have a one-to-one correlation, right? I mean, they were, they were under an old covenant. That, we're not under that covenant. Um, so, same from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Uh, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So, again, we are, as, as God's people, live like it. Live set apart. And so, for us, that doesn't necessarily mean these dietary laws to be separated, because we're not a nation people of God. We're not a visible ethnicity set of people. Now, also to be clear, when I say ethnicity, this doesn't mean other people couldn't join in following Yahweh. They could come. In fact, we see that happen through some people later on in the storyline for sure, right? I mean, it starts with Abraham, who's a pagan. We don't have any Jews before that. But as you keep going, you see people who, who they, they come along and they fear the one true God and they start associating with the Jewish people, right? So this is not just a, if you're not Jewish, there's no way you can come to God in the Old Testament. That's not true. But he is working through the Jews in the Old Covenant. That's what he's doing, right? Okay. So, let's see. So, yeah, we need to do that now. Can we, can we eat stuff? I mean, can you eat shrimp and catfish um, and bacon with a clean conscience, right? Could you um, go to Bucky's and eat beaver nuggets or rock badger nuggets or whatever they're serving up? Um, the answer is yes, you can. Because we are not under these dietary laws. The old covenant has been fulfilled. We see that in Hebrews very clearly. Um, We see it with the dietary laws in Acts 10. Uh, I'm going to read just a couple verses from Acts 10. You remember in Acts 10, Peter has this vision um, where the Lord basically lays down this blanket, this sheet, and all these animals, clean and unclean, come out. And the Lord says, rise, kill, and eat. Right? Hunters, that's like their life verse, right? Rise, kill, eat. Um, That's good. That's fine. Go for it. Um... But he says, this is what Peter says, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten, this is Acts uh, 10, 13, 14. Lord, I have, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. The voice comes again and says, What God has made clean, do not call common. Okay, so that's one place we clearly see there's no such thing as unclean food in the New Covenant. Um, happens three times, verse 28. Um, you, and so Peter says this to the people, because what happened is God sends them to a Gentile home. Peter's of a Jewish background right? And so he goes to this Jewish home, and this is what Peter is telling them while he's telling them about this vision. He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. So part of the reason I think this is, part of the reason I think we don't have this is because the gospel is now going to every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's, so Gentiles are going to be coming in the kingdom, and these, these first-generation Jews, they're going to have to take the gospel to these Gentiles. And so God breaks down all these dividing walls that came with the Mosaic covenant, right? So that the gospel is going to go forward and we're going to have one church, Jew, Gentile, everyone who's in Christ is in the church, right? Um, Mark seven nineteen, Jesus declares all foods clean, so it's pretty explicit there. Okay, so that is food stuff, but the idea is being set apart to God in that first section. Any Thing you guys stood out to you guys? Questions? Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, two things can be true at the same time. Yes. It can be ceremonially, you know, Jesus can declare all foods clean, and it can still be bad for you. Sure. That's right. Yeah. So you don't have to go eat as much bacon as you possibly can all the time. Right. So <laughs> for the food being ceremonially unclean, um, 
there was a, a lot of advantage to them not eating bats, which we would know nowadays. Right. Yep. So that, that gets back to the hygiene thing. Yeah. yeah so there, and God moved among them. He wasn't interested in all that. Right. Bad hygiene around, which he covers later. You know. Yeah. God's moving among them, so he doesn't want all of that stuff. Yep. But it doesn't make them any, Jesus said, it doesn't make you inside any more clean. Right. There's a ceremonial issue. Yeah. That's right. Good. Good point. Yeah. Just that. Um, so I actually have a family member that tries to keep to all of these because they their conscience is bound. They believe that's yeah. the right teaching. So I've had a lot of conversations and thought about this. And one big takeaway, um, I think, is all of this is about this section is eating what you're supposed to eat and not eat. And so for us today, it's still a close act to eat with someone, but especially in this culture, it's very intimate to share a meal. Right. And so if he's saying you can't eat this, you should not eat this, there's stipulations where we can't eat with these people, we can't eat with the bad yeah. people. That's automatically going to um, set you apart, sure. like literally set you apart, where you're not sharing that very intimate act with uh, with pagan right. and idol worshippers. You just can't do it because yeah. you can't eat, and you can't. They may even prepare clean food, but are they preparing it alongside unclean? Yeah, that's right. So that I think that's really the heart of it. It's not the particular, this certain meat is unhealthy per se. I think it's more, if you're not eating this, you won't be eating it. Right. Yeah, so, so, there's a, so part of the distinction through the dietary laws is it will keep them practically from being drawn into pagan worship, pagan fellowship, things that would lead them astray. I think that's true, yeah. The other thing is, <clears throat> in um, Corinthians, Mm -hmm. Paul deals with another aspect of this, yeah. this, this thing about eating what you can and what you can't. And, and it's uh, much more complex. Right. Now, it's not the item, but it's, are you offending your brother? Right, yes. Or are you going to offend the, the, uh, the host? That's right, yep. The uh, meat from the, from the temple. Right, yep, yep. So Paul, Paul deals with, with how we deal with consciences, our own conscience, consciences of others, things like that. Yep, that's right. All right. Well, let's let's keep pressing on here. The next point, and we're and we're not going to spend as much time on all these points. That's intentional. I just thought we should spend some time on that one. Uh, the next one in chapter fourteen is a giving people relying on God and joyful giving. Look at verse twenty-two, chapter fourteen. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat of the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and the flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord God always. So you can see the point there is you'll learn to fear the God always. I think another way of saying that is you trust God. You recognize he provided everything and that he's the one who's going to keep providing. It's not all these f false gods of the land that provided food. It's God. You fear God alone. So part of their giving is a sign that they fear and trust God, right? I, I fear um, not having the blessings of God, uh, having God's presence more than I fear parting with this money or this food or this whatever. Because why? I recognize God is the source of all these good gifts. That's kind of what's being said here. Um, so then he goes on and talks about what to do if it's too long of a, a walk because, again, he's, he's, he's adding, when you're in the land, there's going to be a particular place you're going to go to. And so he tells them they can sell it and then they can uh, take that money and then they can go buy what they, are, what they want and enjoy that before the Lord once they get to Jerusalem. He doesn't say Jerusalem here yet. That name hasn't been given, but you get the point. That that's where it's going to eventually be. 
Um, spend, verse 26, spend the money on whatever you desire, oxen, sheep, uh, wine, or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. So again, we see the centrality of God's presence among his people. Um, so what we have happening here is we're going to have, there's, this is the first one that I just read. There's two kind of sections here. Is the tithe that's to be brought to the sanctuary, the central area in Israel which eventually will be Jerusalem. Uh, that's where they're supposed to bring this, this tithe. Tithe means 10%, or 10th is what it's referring to. Uh, that's what the word literally refers to as a 10th. Um, the, uh, let's see. Okay, a couple more things here. One thing is that we, when I first read over this, I had to read over it a couple times before I really realized it. I think one emphasis is God is going to provide for them. They're not in the land yet. They've just got done wandering for 40 years. And the fact that they're going to be able to have land and produce, what, what's he saying? God is going to make good on his promises to provide for you abundantly in this land. We can almost miss that when we read over, but if you remember the context, it reminds you of that. They're not in the land yet. This is a promise being made. And so sure is the promise that the command is you're going to take a tenth of that every year and bring it to the sanctuary to celebrate before the Lord and give him thanks. God's, they're banking on God's promise here is what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, and, and so they're supposed to go gather up a tenth, take it to the central area. Verse 26, they're, they're going to enjoy some of this uh, when they get to Jerusalem. It says, uh, verse, the second part of verse 26, you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice and your house with, uh, let's see, uh, your God and rejoice, you and your household. So there's a, a celebration before the Lord, kind of like dining at the king's table. Um, that's kind of what they're going to do. Well, there's another tithe, and that's in verses 27 and following. Uh, I'm just going to skip down to verse 28. Look at verse 28. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out of uh, out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your town shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work your hands of your hands uh, that you do. So what do these individuals have in common? The Levite, the widow, uh, sojourner, fatherless, what do they all have in common? Yes. So they have no way of supporting themselves in terms of land. They don't own land that's going to produce what they need to eat, right? It's not like you just go down to Walmart and pick up something. So they, you don't have land, you're not going to really be able to produce very much produce for yourself. Uh, so these are all dependent, right? Now, now the Levites are dependent because... The Lord is going to put them in different towns around Israel, and and He's not. And their inheritance is what? It's not land. It's they're supposed to picture what all the other Israelites really, where their real inheritance is, which is the Lord Himself, is their inheritance. That's true for all the Israelites, but they're all going to have to make food too, right? So they all have they they experience that through owning land, really. That's why land is pretty central in the Old Covenant. So they're going to they're gonna have this, um, the sojourner, fatherless widow. These are people who um, would not have had the same uh, land provision or pr- providers or protectors to take care of them, provide what they needed, like a father would take care of his family, a husband would take care of his wife. Um, so they, they would need provision. So they're to store up some stuff, and that's to be given to them. It's, it goes in the towns because each town will then distribute it as needed. So how does this apply to us? Because we don't live as a national people of God, right? Where everything's in one kind of location and our nation is the same as our uh, religious component. Um, There are things that are different here. So let me ask a couple questions. Do we still have an obligation to give to the Lord's work? Yes. Where would we find support for that? 
think it's on there. Give grudgingly or under compulsion. There you go. Yeah. Support the That's right. Support our shepherds. That's right. Yep. So 2 Corinthians 9, 7 through 12, that'd be a passage you could look at. Um, I'll just read verse 7 here. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So are we under a 10% requirement? No, we don't see that in the new covenant, but we do see cheerful giver, which I would say could often be more than 10%. There may be times where it's going to be less than 10%, depending on your life circumstances, right? Um, But the point is cheerful giving is regular. And the same thing that we saw with them, I think, which is this idea that God is the one who's going to provide for your needs so that then you can do these good works, you can, which includes providing for your own needs. That is a good work God's given you to do. But it's not just the selfish version of provide for my own needs and the rest of y'all, you know, see y'all later. Good luck with your problem. Um, it's, it's then to be able to meet other needs, do other good works, right? And so we, we see that um, happening in giving to missions, giving to the church, giving to the needy, especially the needy among us. Um, when we think about giving to the, to the poor, I think it is important to recognize the New Testament emphasizes, um, focuses on meeting the needs of fellow saints as a primary need because the church is the household of God. Right? Who are you primarily responsible to take care of just physically? The New Testament makes it clear, your own house, your own family. If you don't take care of your own family when, when you can and should, I mean, obviously there may be unique circumstances, right? You're invalid or something. But, but normally, if you're refusing to take care of that, you're worse than an unbeliever, Paul says. And we see the same thing when he says, in, I think it's in Galatians where he talks about, we, don't, we shouldn't grow weary in doing good, and especially to the household of faith. That is the emphasis, that is the focus. Now that doesn't mean you unbelievers take a hike, good luck with your problem, Right, But we have to be very thoughtful in the way that generosity is going to look, recognizing that mercy really should aim to help. And if it ends up hurting and we keep doing that over and over again, that's a problem. That's not really mercy at some point. Right? Um, so yeah, we, go, I mean, we have a long talk about what mercy actually is and, and giving and things like that. But I just want you to get the principle here. So, you know, one thing in our church, we have a benevolence fund. Um, That's one way we try to meet the needs of, especially those within the church. We prioritize members, and then after that, attenders. And then at times, maybe even unbelievers or people who we don't know their spiritual standing who have a need. Um, But we try to do some form of making sure those are legitimate needs. uh, So we're actually helping and not hurting. uh, Because, you know, just throwing money at something actually hurts. There's been a lot of research on that, and we should know that from just reading Proverbs. But... People have also done research to prove that. So um, we, we just need to be wise. And so that's one way we try to do it. You individually may find opportunities to give and try to be wise about what those look like. But um, we certainly don't want to be hard-hearted or close-fisted. We want to be open when we give. And we're going to talk more about that open-handedness and generosity in just a minute because what we're going to look at next is forgiving debts. You see that coming up next? Forgiving debts here. This is in chapter... Uh, 15 verses 1 through 18. So we've talked about the sabbatical year before, uh, every seventh year, and then there's and then there's the the year of jubilee every 50. But that's we're not dealing with that one right now. We're just dealing with the seven year. Um, what's supposed to happen to the land in the seventh year? Does anyone remember what are they supposed to do with the land? Rest. Give it rest, right? So they're not supposed to keep farming it. They're supposed to give it rest, right? There's a sabbatical cycle. Um, so we see in verse one. 
At the end of every seven years, you shall grant re a release. Now here he's not talking about the land, but I, I point that out because we're going to talk about that in a second. But he, he grant, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his, uh, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. And then he goes on and talks about with a foreigner, you can still exact it. But, um, and then he says in verse 6, For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised you, and you shall lend to many nations. So again, what's it rooted in? God's generosity, their connection to God, their relationship to God, life before the face of God. Because this is true, you're, you should be ready to release in these situations. Uh, now, the word release can be, can be used in, in two different ways. One is a full release and forgiveness. Complete, hey, debt is paid, you owe nothing else. Second is it can be a postponement of repayments. So, but either way, it's mercy is the point. The question uh, I don't think has been resolved here as to exactly which one is meant here. Um, so, but for now, we'll just leave it at the idea is there's a merciful um, not exacting what is owed whether it's just for that one year. And in some ways, you, could, you, you certainly understand how at least in that seventh year, the release of debts makes sense, whether it's a full release or whether it's you know, just for the year. Because if a farmer goes into debt, which I mean, they're pretty much all farmers at this point. You're a poor farmer. You're on the poorer end of the scale. You already racked up debt. You can't farm for a year. You're not going to be able to keep making payments, Right? So this is built into their society because this is the way God has told them to do it, which shows a reliance on God. I think that's what they're supposed to be doing. Um, so that's, that's what they're supposed to do. Um, and let's see. Um, okay, so let, let me just talk real quick here. So when, whenever there's um, release, or we could say the word forgiveness really is the same idea. Um, is that free so let's say you owe me a debt, and I say I release you from that debt. Well, again, whether it's just for this year, you don't have to pay anything on it, or whether it's for good, uh, is that free? Is that, is that a costless transaction? No. Well, you, but you didn't pay for it, so why is it not a costless transaction? Didn't cost you anything. Cost somebody something. Ah, yes, economics 101, right? If only more politicians would be in the room. No. Um, so yeah, there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? It costs something. Um, but think about, about, about the point here. God is saying, you can do this release because I am the Lord your God and I will bless you as I promised. When you obey me, and again, what does this mean? Trust me. This takes faith, doesn't it? On paper, this is costing me something and I'm thinking, well, how, you know, how are my needs going to be met? God's going to provide is what he says. To, and again, this is, this is Israel in the land under the old covenant. So there's some things that are unique, but the same idea continues. And, and so um, I think when it comes to debts, we need to be you know, very thoughtful about that, especially with Christians. You know, he's talking about fellow believers here. Um, one of the reasons he says you can still get it from the foreigner is because they're, they're, not, they're not a sojourner. They haven't said, I'm associating with Israel. And, and they could potentially still work and, and bring in money from their outside country that they're still associated with. There's all sorts of things. But um, with Christians, we have to be very thoughtful about how we handle this. Um, but the one thing I will say that is very clear in the New, new Covenant, that is, I would say... Um, a very good application is for the new covenant is what is forgiveness, but a release of debt. You owe me something because of the hurt you have caused. Or I owe you something because of the hurt I've caused to you. Forgiveness is costly, right? And it takes trust in the Lord. 
Because what I'm saying is I'm going to absorb the pain of this and I'm looking to you, God, to be gracious and sustain me while I do that. that that's, so this, I think this, we, how does this apply to us? I think that's definitely one way it applies to us. I mean, I don't know about the financial side and we have to think through all that. We should still be generous, but certainly when it comes to forgiveness of sin debt against one another, when someone is repentant and they're asking for forgiveness, there, this is why the New Testament says there then must be a willingness to release. And we have to be patient with each other. If, if you, so if you're the one who's wronged someone really bad, don't take this and then run after them and demand that they forgive you immediately. They should, that should be their heart. But be patient and recognize, you know, we all have to humble ourselves before the Lord and ask for forgiveness for not. And so, but what is it that motivates us to do this? We think of how much God's forgiven us, how generous he's been to us. And that should motivate a releasing of the other person from the debt that they owe us, right? Okay, um, any thoughts or questions on that? Yeah. Um, going back to the first part. Uh, so it's every seven years, and that seven years was the same year for everybody. So if you're in year six and somebody asks you to lend them money, you already know ahead of time that... Yeah. Yeah, and so actually that's what he's going to deal with uh, next is uh, what do we do about that? Um, thinking about, uh, maybe we'll just wrap it up here and Doug and I will figure out what we're gonna do for the next, so we are, so next week, um, Sunday school is with Dr. Ware, right? And I think that, is that out in the auditorium? So that'll be out in the auditorium. So we'll do that with Dr. Ware in the auditorium and then after that, we'll pick back up with um, Deuteronomy. But um, since you brought up that question and he deals with that next, rather than just rush through all this, we'll just come back and we'll pick up, pick up there. Okay? Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to um, gather together to hear your word. And um, we do pray that you would um, give us generous hearts. Um, really, God, we pray that you'd help us to live as a people that belong to you, that exist to declare your excellencies, your character, your kindnesses, um, your love, your, even your justice that in all these things we would represent you. Uh, we pray that we'd be a people who are ready to forgive and, and release debts uh, as we think of how much you have forgiven us, God. That we would not be like the unforgiving servant um, who in pride um, uh, wanted forgiveness and then wanted to demand recompense from others. Help us to be ready to forgive when others are repentant. Help us to encourage uh, one another to walk in your ways. Help us to be a people set apart to you, God, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.